you are here with us this morning and uh, we uh, we can sing all over the world we want to see God's name cried out and so uh, we have a commission to take that name all over the world we're glad you're with us this morning at Northside um, maybe you're a home folks maybe you are uh, a guest with us this morning if you're a guest we would love to know more about you particularly if you're a first or second time guest and there's a, a portion of your bulletin you can tear out and fill that out and tear it out put it in the offering plate hand it to one of the ministers at the door, um, but uh, we are so glad that, that you are with us today. Um, and so right now, find somebody that you haven't spoken to yet, or if you've already spoken to everybody, say hey to them again, and shake their hand, uh, and let them know that you're excited to be in the Lord's house this morning.
Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your great name you've given us. We accept all these vows and offerings to serve you in your mighty name. Amen.
Philadelphia, 1776. 56 men stood together in a place called Independence Hall and put their lives on line for the freedom we now enjoy. They did not load their muskets, however, and they did not draw their swords. Instead, they raised their pens, each signing his name to a declaration that said, in part, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This new country would be called America.
who put it there. Some imagine it to be the hands of the many men and women who have served our country through the years. And yet some would like to believe that is a symbol of God's hand that has blessed us, protected us, and guided us through generation after generation. So let us praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let us follow his sure and steady hand. Let us reach out to him in all things and for all ways.
would please remain standing and open to the book of Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Acts 9, 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up and go into the city you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him to Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Lord, thank you for your word that you've given to us. Please bless the reading of your word as we continue to open up your word, ask that the Holy Spirit guide and lead and illumine your word for us. Speak now and may we listen. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So as we have already mentioned this morning, July 4, 1776 in Philadelphia, some men penned the words, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence continues to go on from there, spelling out the grievances against the king. That was a great day, not just in the history of our country, but uh, a great day in the history of the world. In fact, over the course of the last 400 years or so, you'd be hard-pressed to find a greater, more momentous day than that day. But with all due respect to that day, and to all due respect to all those who penned those words, and to all the signers of the Constitution, or to the, to the Declaration of Independence and to the Constitution a few years later, I want to submit to you that what we're studying today from the book of Acts is far greater has had far, far more impact on the history of the world. In fact, I would put it, I'd put the conversion of Saul and Paul right up there with the giving of the law to Moses. The impact that this has had on the history of the world, very important. Johnny Hunt says that many people believe that Paul is the most important human being that ever lived obviously outside of Jesus Christ. Dr. Hunt would go on to say, the most crucial event in history for which Jesus Christ lived, died, was resurrected and glorified was his infilling of a new humanity, the body of Christ. He's speaking there about the day of Pentecost and filling the, the, the church. But he goes on to say, the second most strategic event was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and the profound secret of his watershed life was that Christ lived in him. Now, I've already called this man Saul, and I've already called him Paul. So my question is, who was Saul? If he is significant, who was he? What makes him so significant? What makes this event so significant? I'm going to stand on that, that this is one of the most important events in the history of the world. So who was he? Well, who was he before Christ? Well, before I go any further, let's talk about this, this idea of, is he Saul or, or is he Paul? Are we talking about the same person? Yes, we are. Now, 
a lot of times there's a teaching that goes something along these lines. There was Saul, Saul the vile, horrific persecutor of Christians. And then there's Paul, the apostle, the missionary, the great missionary to the Gentiles that, went, that left Jerusalem on his way to, to Rome. Well, there is some truth in that. It's not exactly like Abram and Abraham, and God met him and said, from this point forward, your name will be changed. It's not, it's not, it's not quite like that at all. In fact, what we see here is that in verse 4, we just read, Saul is the name that Jesus used when he, when he spoke to him. Later, in verse 17, chapter 9, Ananias calls him Saul. Chapter 13, verse 2, he's called Saul by the Holy Spirit. There was a decisive shift to calling him Paul, but it really only took place after Paul sets out on, the, on his missionary journey from Jerusalem. Now that's key. That's, that's uh, chapter 13. You'll, you'll find that. That's pretty key as he leaves Jerusalem. Let me, let me go a little bit further. In chapter 13 also, we see in verse 9, we see, we see this phrase, or this, this sentence. But Saul, who was also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same person. Saul is a Hebrew or Aramaic name. Paul is a Greek name. It made sense while he was in Jerusalem to go by the name Saul, and it makes sense as he goes out into the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking world to be called Paul. Whenever uh, you guys know me, you call me BJ. Whenever I've gone, I've taken several mission trips to Spanish-speaking countries, the word BJ doesn't translate real well. Sometimes they call me Bejota, which is the two letters of the alphabet. But oftentimes, I will simply go by the name Roberto. Okay, that's, that may be odd to you here, but when I'm overseas in a Spanish-speaking country, Roberto sounds a little more common. Uh, why do I choose Roberto? Well, my real name is Bobby, and uh, it, it's not Robert, by the way, but Bobby is a moniker for Robert, and I just go with it. Uh, also, there are times when I, I love when someone, I go to a restaurant, and they say, may we have a name for the order? Sure, how about Leonardo? Or... You know, Mercutio, I, I, anything, I, I like to do that. They don't ask my name, a name for the order. Okay, let's come up with a name for that order. Uh, Lindsay loves it when I do that, by the way. Not really. <clears throat> but, uh, but Saul is Paul, and Paul is Saul, so if I use one name and not the other, we're talking about the same person. Uh, but here we have the conversion story of the Apostle Paul. And uh, what we see here, or what we will see, is his life before Christ. We're going to study that today, his life before Christ. We're going to study how he met Christ. And then, for the next several weeks, we're going to look at his life after Christ. What, what is his impact? What, Christ, what impact did Christ make in this man that we're discussing today? But as we look at who, who is Saul, who is he before Christ? Well, we can gain some insight from other passages because he would go on to write several letters for the church, and we can gain some insight as we study these other letters. Philippians 3, 5 through 6, Paul is describing himself. He's talking about, he says, if any of you have a right to brag about yourself, I've got a right to brag about myself. And this is what he says. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is the law, blameless. Now he would go on to say, but I count all that, I count all that as rubbish or dung for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. So who was he? Well, he had Hebrew parents, but he was raised in the Hellenistic town of Tarsus. So he would have been influenced by both of those cultures. So he's Hebrew, yet he's Hellenistic. He studied under Gamaliel. We'll see that in just a minute. He became a member of the Pharisees. Now he probably attended university in Tarsus, which would have really only, in that day and time, would have really only been outclassed by the universities in Alexandria and Athens, the, the Athens in Greece. <clears throat> I'm glad you got that. 
He spoke, he spoke fluently Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. I had a professor who said unashamedly that he believed Paul was the most brilliant man to ever walk the face of the earth. When you study his writings, when you study his interactions with his fellow Jews, when you study his interactions with the Greeks, he says he must have been the most brilliant man. Just, just a brilliant man. He knew the Old Testament law. He knew the Old Testament prophets inside and out. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 22, we see this. He says, I'm a Jewish man born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to bring those who were prisoners there to be punished in Jerusalem. We see this is a, a man who, he's really a brilliant man. He knows the law. He's intent on carrying out the law. He's doing what he feels is right. He's doing what he feels is just. He is trying to preserve the way of the Hebrew. He's a Pharisee. He goes to the Sanhedrin. He goes to the high priest, and he asks for some, some, some papers so that he can continue persecuting all those who are coming against this way of life, all those who are, who are, who are coming against his religion as he sees it. And he is very zealous in his endeavors. Who was Saul? There's even more here in this immediate context. Look again at chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now at first, at first, what we see of Saul is that he was primarily directing all of his threats, all of his endeavors toward the Christians that were in and around Jerusalem. You see that in chapter 8, verse 3. We see it again later in chapter 26. This is what he was doing. Now, there is a particular verb. There's a, there's a Greek word used in chapter 8, verse 3. It starts with an L or a lambda, and I'll probably pronounce it wrong, so just assume there's a word there. And it talks about Saul destroying or going after the church. This, this particular Greek word, the only reason I mention it is because it's only used one other time, not in the New Testament, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's only used one other time in all of Scripture, and it's found in Psalm 80, verse 13. And in that sense, it's talking about wild boars as they attack a vineyard. That's the description used of a wild animal rooting up and destroying a vineyard. It's the same word used to describe Saul as he is rooting out and trying to destroy the church. I find that very interesting. That's a pretty strong word. But, as we see, not only did he carry out this, 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 these attacks in Jerusalem, apparently... Apparently, there were some of the Christians who had fled to Damascus. If you'll remember, after Stephen was stoned, it says that in chapter 8, it says there was a great persecution that broke out that day, and all the believers fled except for the apostles. So apparently, there were many of them who had traveled to Damascus. And so, Paul goes to the high priest, and he asked for some papers. He requested some, 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 some papers, but from the context, it doesn't look like it was just a strictly like an extradition. He didn't just go straight to the people and say, I have orders to arrest you. Rather, he says, it, it says that he had papers that he would take to the temple in Damascus. And so he's going to go there to Damascus uh, from, from the Sanhedrin. He's going to go to the, uh, excuse me, I said temple, but to the synagogues there in Damascus because he would need their support in rounding up those Christians. With their support, his intent is to take the Christians back to Jerusalem to imprison them, to torture them, to kill them, to assign them to death. Not really sure. But it wasn't to take them back so they could enjoy a day at the spa. He's going to take them back, put them under trial, and see what would happen. 
in verse 1 there, it says Saul was breathing threats and murder. Or maybe yours says breathing out murderous threats. One commentator says that the, the, the wording used here is an allusion to the panting or snorting of wild beasts. We see Saul here as someone who is incredibly angry. He just has a lot of vile hatred for the church and for the Christians. And it un, maybe, a, maybe an uncontrolled rage type, type deal. Just a very angry human being going after, going after any of those who claim to be part of the way. But he meets someone as he's approaching Damascus. Look again, let's read verses 3 and 5 again, 3 through 5 again. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, he said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. How did Saul meet Christ? This man who was blinded by darkness is now all of a sudden blinded by the light of heaven. I find that interesting. He couldn't see his fault before. And now he can't see his hand in front of his face. He was blinded by his sin and by the darkness. Now he's blinded by the light of heaven. You see, it's almost like, it's almost like Christ has come down and seized him. So he can't go into Damascus and, see, and, and, and seize his followers. He's now been arrested by the, by the power of Jesus Christ, and he no longer can go into Damascus and arrest any of his followers. But I love this question because the question here isn't, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. Jesus Christ is head of the church. Not only that, he's described as the groom and the church, his bride. I know that if you do something to my bride, that's one way to get me upset. Okay, so when we attack the church, it's an attack on Christ. And we need to be careful within the church about how we talk about other churches and other church members. We need to be really careful about how we go about I'm not saying that we don't go to people and out of love try to correct and discipline each other. We are called to do that. But to sling mud on the bride, we need to remember who the groom is, and he might just meet us on the road some, sometime. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you? <laughs> Can you imagine what's going through his mind? I know that I've been attacking the followers of the way, but who is this that's talking to me about persecuting him? Who, who is this I'm persecuting? It's me, Jesus. And what is flooding through his mind at this point? What is going through his mind? Now, this is the first time that we encounter this story, but it's not the first time this story is told, or it's, or it, it's not the only time this story is told. Paul retells this story himself as he's in front of uh, as, as he's in front of Agrippa in Acts 26. So if you want to hold your place there and turn to Acts 26, we gain a little bit more insight into this story here. Verse 12 through 14 sound very, very familiar. But as we get to the second part of verse 14, if it happens to be in red, that's what I'm reading. As he hears this, this language, as, 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 he hears, uh, excuse me, as, as he hears the Lord speaking to him, he says this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? What are goads? Well, I thought I'd find a picture of a goad and show it to you, but then I thought, Everybody's seen a stick. That's what it is. It's just a big, long stick with a point on the end, and it was used to prod cattle or oxen along the way. And um, sometimes those animals would get upset and try to kick against that goad, and what would happen is it would hurt. 
far more than just going along with wherever the farmer, the, the herdsman were taking his cattle. So what goads is Jesus talking about? It's not a literal goad. There's not people poking him with sharp sticks. What's he talking about? Now some of this is, is speculation, but hang with me here. Perhaps, perhaps he really is a contemporary of Jesus. Surely he's about the same age as Jesus because all of this that's happened so far up to the chapter 9 in the book of Acts has happened relatively soon after Jesus' ascension. So is it possible, is it possible that while he's in Jerusalem, at some point in his life, he's, he's heard Jesus preach. He's seen Jesus in the temple. Has he seen Jesus flip the tables in the temple? Has he seen Jesus heal people? Has he seen miracles of Jesus? If not, certainly he's heard people who've been witnesses to this. Now, are all of these things replaying in his mind? Wow. Maybe, just maybe, there was a time in which he was at the temple and Jesus is at the temple and he's getting filled with rage and anger and their eyes happen to meet across the crowd. I don't know. What are these goads that we're talking about? Maybe it's just his inner conscience. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been, has been guiding and leading, and there's some conscience there that's trying to say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Maybe his mentor, Gamaliel, maybe it was his conciliatory response to Peter and John in Acts chapter 5. We looked at this a few weeks ago. As they were looking to see, what do we need to do to Peter and John? You know, they, they've been arrested, and they're preaching this Jesus. They're preaching this gospel, this man named Jesus. What do we need to do to them? And they, dis, they dismiss Peter and John as they discuss what would take place. And Gamaliel said, hey, whatever you do, you need to be careful. Had he heard about his teachers? Response. His teacher didn't go after them and lock them up or, or crucify them or, or, or kill them. His teacher, for all those years, had been a little more passive, a little more respectful of these people. Had he heard that? Was that, a, was that a goad? Or maybe, or maybe he's thinking, wow, I was standing right there the last time the last time someone looked up into the heavens and saw this Jesus, and I remember Stephen's face, it was like the face of an angel. And I remember he was unrelenting in, in what he was preaching. And now I've been, now I've seen this light and I'm blinded. And I can't help but think about Stephen's face. I don't know. But oftentimes, oftentimes you hear that the conversion of Paul was very quick, was a very sudden conversion. And while his transformation was quick, it was not something that just came out of nowhere. To me, I believe it's clear that God had been working on him for quite some time. Those goads had been prodding him for quite some time. And in the perfect moment, at just the right moment, Jesus did meet him on the road to Damascus. And in that moment, we see something different look, look back now at verses 7 through 9 the men who were traveling with him they stood speechless hearing the sound but seeing no one and Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open he could see nothing so they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. So here we have Saul. Someone who is perhaps the greatest threat to the church. After Pentecost has come and the, the people are filled, we have one man who is on a mission to destroy all those a part of the way. He wants to keep, he wants to keep Judaism. And he wants to keep the law. And he's on a mission. He's single-minded in his efforts. And he is very zealous in his efforts to go after people of the way. He's going to Damascus to continue this rage against the church. 
But just as he's approaching Damascus, he meets Jesus. He meets Jesus. And that's the very thing that changes everything for him. He would go on to say in, in other letters, if Jesus Christ is crucified, that's, that's all we need to know. Because if Jesus, excuse me, if Jesus, if Jesus Christ is crucified and resurrected, that's what we need to know. If he's not been resurrected, then everything we're doing, we're most to be pitied if Jesus is not really resurrected. And what he met that day on the road to Damascus was a resurrected Jesus. And that's what changed everything about him. Because now he's confronted with everything that he's taught, everything that he's known, everything that he's been preaching is now come into conflict because he sees the resurrected Jesus Christ, the glorified Jesus Christ. And now everything, his whole world is flipped upside down. Everything has changed. So what does he do about it? Well, I'm glad you asked. And we're going to study that in the next few weeks. But I would ask you this. What is your testimony? What's your testimony? This is, this is Saul's. Mine's not exactly like his. My guess is yours isn't either. What was your life before you met Christ? How did you meet Christ? What were the circumstances? Who was there? Was anybody else there? Was it morning, night, VBS? Was it at a revival? Was it somewhere by yourself? How did you meet Christ? And then what's your life been like since Jesus? How has he impacted your life? All of those are very important. If Jesus hasn't meant anything to you since you've met him, then you didn't really meet him. Now, there's a website I want to share with you. It's, a, it's be displayed up here. It's called whativaluemost.com. Whativaluemost.com. It's a real simple concept. Um, I, I looked at it this week and realized I need to update mine. But you can go online and you can fill out, you can put your testimony in there. And uh, I have it on, on my business card. On the, on the business card I got when I started here five years ago, it's got, my, it's got my name, obviously, and my title in the church and all that. But also on there, it says whativaluemost.com. And when I give it to people, they can go to that website and they look for my name and it comes up and there's my testimony. It's a real easy way to... to for, for people to read today. and then I get feedback when anytime somebody reads my testimony I get an email hey somebody read your testimony today we'll let you know if there's anything else if they have any questions or anything that follows up <coughs> this is what I would encourage you to do you don't have to go to that website if you don't want to but I would encourage you sometime this week stop if you had especially if you hadn't done this in a long time and just write out what was your life before Christ how did you meet Christ what is your life after Christ it doesn't have to be very long. It can be very. It, it can really be relatively short. It can be pretty brief. In fact, you should practice being able to share that in about two minutes or less. Don't go over two minutes. Keep it pretty short. If you get a chance to share your testimony, you practice. You 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 know what you're going to say as you share your testimony with folks. This website just gives you a tool in order to practice that as well. Do you have a testimony? But the second question is. Really, have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? Do you have a testimony? If you went to this website, would you be able to put anything down? Have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? Now, I've heard people say before, well, you know, Paul had that Damascus Road experience, and I just, I never really had anything like that. Well, you know, you don't have to have a Damascus Road experience, whatever that is. You don't have to be struck by divine lightning causing blindness for three days and then fall to the ground and then have your name called out in Aramaic and, and all while traveling for six, day, six days by foot. You know, you don't have to have that kind of experience to meet Christ and have him change your life. Here's what you do need. A personal encounter with Jesus. Repent from your sin. Surrender to follow him and respond to his summons for service. Now in those ways, exactly like Saul, exactly like a Damascus Road experience, but not a blinding light that strikes you blind. You don't need a Damascus Road experience. What we need, what we need is to stop kicking against the goads. 
we need to stop kicking against the goads. And so my question is, what goads are in your life? Are there goads that are prodding you to repent and surrender your life to Christ? Has he been prodding and gently, gently pushing you to just respond, just repent, just, just come to me in faith? Or maybe God's calling you to join fellowship with the church, to join Northside. We'd love to have you. If God's calling you here, we, we'd love to have you here. Or maybe God's calling you and prodding you and, and goading you. I don't even know if goading is a verb, but he's, he's using a goad to share the gospel with a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker. What about, what about that kid on the football team or the one that sits over kind of by themselves at lunch at school? I know you're not in school right now, but you know who I'm talking about. You, you go into class, and you know that you're going to be in class with this, with this kid, and uh, it, it may be somebody that has lots of friends. It may be somebody that's kind of a loner. There's somebody at your school that God is saying, hey, just befriend them and talk to them and let them know who I am. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to extend forgiveness to someone. There's somebody in your life that there's been a grudge between you for as long as you can really remember. And at some point, that relationship gets restored because you take the step to go out in forgiveness mend that relationship and God has been taking his goad and pushing you toward that end what goads are in your life we're going to sing now and have a time of reflection and I would just ask what's God leading you to today where is he where is he pushing you has he been pursuing you for some time? And we just need to surrender. Whether it's for the first time ever in saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, or maybe it's just some area that we've yet to submit to him as Lord. How is God leading you? And will you respond? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the life of Saul. Man, if there's ever a story that talks about the reality of who Jesus is, it's, it's this story. Apologists use this story all the time to talk about the significance of Christ and a changed life. A man who was set out to destroy the church became its greatest missionary all because he encountered Jesus Christ. A real, true encounter. And so, Lord, that's my prayer today is that we have a real and true encounter with Jesus Christ. As you speak, may we listen. As you lead, may we follow. Father, help us to not kick against the goads. Help us to respond as you lead. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I would ask if you would stand and uh, spend some time right now with your creator. Spend some time with the Lord God. As he speaks, you respond. It may be right there in your chair or up here. The, the altar's open. Or if you want someone to pray with you, I'll be happy to do that. But as God speaks, you listen. Pay attention to your bulletin. There are several things, several important things that in there. Um, we have our deacon election coming up real soon, and so you'll see a list of names that are in there. And uh, so you just want to make sure that you're aware of that. Also, uh, almost as important, you know, the ice cream fellowship is coming up. And so, uh, hey, and, and here's the deal about the ice cream fellowship. It is always better when there's another churn of ice cream that's been brought in, okay? So we'd love for you to sign up out in the, in the foyer. Tell us what flavor you're bringing. If you don't know, you can put mystery, I guess. But, um, but we would love for you to be a part of that. And 
our, our Sunday nights, our, our family Sunday night stuff, I, I love those times where we're all together. Uh, and if you hadn't been yet this summer, you're really missing out. I mean, cause, and, and we're missing out because you're not there. Okay, so, so we'd love for you to come and, and be a part of that. Uh, of course, there's nothing tonight, but, um, but we'd love to see you back here uh, next Sunday. There's nothing either on, on uh, Wednesday this week, so as we're celebrating Independence Day. Uh, I think that is all. I'm going to ask Kevin, if you will, to come up and dismiss us in prayer.